Sometimes you just have to speak the truth about who the bad actors are and what the impact is that they're having. It is the week of May 26th, and welcome to episode 26 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Les Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with my friend Kirsten Madison, Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Prior to her current appointment, Kirsten served in senior leadership positions at the White House, the State Department, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, where we worked together for several years. Kirsten's prior executive branch experience includes serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, Director for Western Hemisphere Affairs on the National Security Council, and Director of International Affairs and Foreign Policy Advisor to the Commandant of the Coast Guard. She also served in the legislative branch, having served as Senior Professional Staff Member and Deputy Staff Director of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations as well as Legislative Director and International Affairs Advisor for Representative Porter Goss. Kirsten is, without a doubt, one of the most credentialed and experienced and terrific people currently serving in the U.S. government. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's a great opportunity to have a conversation about issues I care about. Great. So we're excited. And I was thinking the title of this podcast might be Better Know a State Department Bureau. So in light of that, talk to us about the INL Bureau, International Narcotics and law enforcement. What is it? What do you do? And how do you relate to what most people think of as the State Department, which is our embassies abroad? Thanks. It's a great question because most people don't know. So INL's job is to work on international crime, illegal drugs, wildlife trafficking, judicial issues, the sources of instability, the things that really undermine good governance. And we implement programs in 80 countries around the world. So on any given day, our team might be helping to train a group of law enforcement officials for complex investigations on cybercrime or on money laundering. We might be working to improve prisons or judicial processes. We certainly would be working to counter crime and uh, illegal drugs. And our goal in all of this is to ensure that crime, drugs, and other things that negatively impact U.S. interests and U.S. citizens are dealt with as far from our shores as we can get them dealt with. So that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like a, a salutary mission is fighting corruption. One of the things that you work on and how much of a factor is it in the work that the Bureau does? Corruption, it's such a thief, right? To everything that we care about. You can't work on international criminal issues. You can't work on improving institutions without taking on the issue of corruption. Every criminal organization in the world requires corruption to be successful. It's part of their business model. So everything we're trying to do to help countries address crime and address illicit activity, improve their institutions, corruption is working against us. So it really is at the heart of what we do. It weakens institutions. And I would also add, it actually harms our businesses and it harms our economy. Because when you have our businesses trying to operate in environments where corruption is rampant, they are at a fundamental disadvantage because, as you know, it is not our practice to pay bribes and other things. So it really disadvantages us in addition to undermining our goals on the law enforcement and justice side of things. 
So one of the things, Kirsten, that we worked on together when we were Hill staff uh, just a few years ago was the global Magnitsky bill that is now law that essentially makes it a sanctionable thing around the world for foreign government officials, non-U.S. government officials to engage in corruption. It's brought corruption up to a level equal to human rights abuses. So as you move from the Hill to the State Department and a couple of stops along the way, how is the implementation of that going? How are you seeing that played out in the real world? It's actually a really important tool for the for the work that we do. Treasury has the lead, but we are a player here at the State Department in the process of getting Global Magnitsky lists together and getting them promulgated. And I think it's a really powerful tool because sometimes you just have to speak the truth, right, about who the bad actors are and what the impact is that they're having. And you have to name them and you have to identify them. Um, and in our case, we add in INL a couple of other authorities alongside of Global Magnitsky. We have what's called 7031C. I know that's boring, but 7031C authorities, which allow us to ask the secretary to review corruption on the part of foreign officials and to look at the question of whether or not they should be designated and blocked from entering the U.S. and whether or not their children should also be blocked as families. And this works alongside of things like Global Magnitsky. And I think it's very powerful. And we have done designations in, in under the authority that the State Department has in countries, you know, it's Bosnia and Guatemala and Kenya, and they really get attention uh, and they really highlight the issue of corruption. And what we hope is that it gives additional leverage to both civil society and governments that are working to take on corruption issues by just sort of giving them a little bit of leverage publicly to begin their work of investigating and prosecuting and actually holding these people accountable. One of the things that people talk about, uh, I think normal Americans talk about in terms of U.S. foreign policy and national security is that we don't want to be the world's policemen. And I think when people say that it's a nice idea, we're usually talking about military actions where we're trying to stop one country or a group of countries from doing something that is against our values. And that's not always the right thing to do. But here we're talking about actual policing activities around the globe. The U.S. does play an important role. You're a key policymaker and executor of the policy. Do you feel like there's a line that we shouldn't go across that, yes, we have interests around the world and we need to be willing to act on them. But sometimes, you know, maybe we we hold back and it's not necessarily our business. How do you think of that tension in your position? That's a great question. I think for us, we recognize the imperative for the U.S. to have partners around the world who will work with us to take on transnational crime. You know, there is local crime, but so much of what we're talking about now is transnational. It's global. It's about the movement of illicit goods. It's about the movement of vast quantities of money. And so we need partners to work on this. So what we're always after is to identify countries where you have a government that's willing to work with us, uh, where they have the will themselves to take this on. And there are places over time where we have determined that there wasn't will and we have stepped back. But our goal is always to be building the network of the good guys who can operate against the network of bad guys in the world. Where there isn't will, we have to be honest with ourselves. So a, uh, a recent dip note from Marianne Toussaint said, governments cannot fight corruption alone. As such, we welcome information from civil society, media, the private sector, and individual citizens on corruption in their countries. So how does INL work with partners that aren't necessarily government, civil society groups, that kind of thing in this huge task that you have? It's a great question. And I think, again, it isn't 
just about what governments think and, and what they do. It's also really powerful to have individuals in civil society and organizations in civil society that are advocates for taking on corruption, that provide support for that process, that highlight those issues. You know, they can be very important partners on developing things like global Magnitsky uh, packages, right? Because there's a lot of knowledge out in civil society on human rights and other things. My last oversight trip before I left the Hill and we were last working together was to Ukraine. Uh, and what was fascinating to me about Ukraine was just the depth and breadth uh, and commitment of civil society. And what you've seen in, in, in a place like Ukraine where the imperative coming out of the revolution really was for them to take on corruption. And that's really a hard thing to do. You have to build the institutions, you have to build the will, you have to take on people who have power and influence. And in a place like Ukraine, you can see where civil society is that essential partner, right? They, they are not just sort of individuals in, in, in sort of civil society groups, but also the free media and others who can highlight these issues, who raise them, who create pressure for them to be addressed. It's an absolutely critical piece. We work with journalists, we work with civil society. We work at that connective point between those who are governed and those who govern. So what we're trying to do is open that sort of aperture for, for the kind of dialogue that has to happen to take these issues on to actually begin to move the process forward. It's a really critical piece of the puzzle. And we do a, a whole lot of other things, of course, on this issue set, but the civil society piece and uh, the journalist piece of it is one of the key pieces to actually holding a system accountable and making progress over time. Great stuff. So so let's step back a little bit from, from the issues per se and talk a little bit more about the, the functionality of the INL Bureau. Your issues span the globe. You're considered a functional bureau, not a regional bureau. So you have responsibility for certain functions of the State Department and the U.S. government, whereas some of the other bureaus have a responsibility for a region and specific countries. So how do you, as the leader of a functional bureau, interact with embassies on the ground. How does that play out on in a day-to-day -day back and forth inside the State Department? It's complicated. We, we are a functional bureau and it does give us reach across the globe, uh, but we are tightly tied, not just in embassies field, but also in Washington to the regional bureaus, right? We're trying to figure out how we bring together foreign assistance tools and diplomacy and our engagement in these sort of international regulatory structures that relate to crime in a way to move the ball forward on the things that we care about. So we work very closely with the regional bureaus to figure out where our opportunities are, to set our priorities. Uh, we could go into many places and do a lot more than we do, but you know you can't do everything. So we do try and identify the, the real opportunities and then downrange in many, many embassies, there is an INL team. Uh, they work as part of the country team and they work closely with U.S. law enforcement agencies that are present in those embassies to try and refine sort of how we focus our programs. We tap into law enforcement. You would find in an INL section or in an embassy in many places that INL is funding DEA or other agencies to keep a person there to work on the critical issues of the day and really get to where that seam between what we do on diplomacy and foreign assistance meets up with what we need as a country on law enforcement and get at the how we work with the government and make them more capable of working with us to stop whatever it is that might be coming at us, whether it's illicit drugs or whether it's trafficking in people, whatever it is, that's what we're really after. 
So we have to work both ends of that. I presume when you were traveling, I know when I traveled as a staff person and you would meet a country team, you know, all the head U.S. officials for a country inside the embassy. And sometimes there'd be 20 people around the table. Sometimes there'd be only five. But you really had a sense of the breadth of interest the U.S. has in a given country. Can you, in your new position where you're really making sure that some of those key country team members have what they need and are executing on a plan, how that impacts the role of, let's say, an ambassador in that country. How important is it that the U.S. ambassador in a place where there's a lot of complicated U.S. interests, how do they balance all of those different bureaucracies, different agencies, different interests that the U.S. has? Can you talk a little bit about that diplomatic function of managing all of those many factors? Well, that really is the art of having a well-functioning embassy. In a place like Colombia, in a place like Beijing, Bangkok, Thailand, I mean, pick, there's so many of them. There's a lot of interest that we have, and there's a lot of agencies present. And the key is to figure out inside of that country team where the highest priorities are and sort of tune up the mission so that everybody's working together. Colombia is a great example of where you have a lot of law enforcement interests because it's a country that is the supply start point for a lot of the cocaine that moves into the US and into Europe. You have a ton of law enforcement agencies, and over time, they've developed a way of working together to kind of get the full benefit of having all of them present. So it's not just DEA, but you have folks from Treasury or FinCEN and organizations that focus on the money flows that are related to crime. So you have them all in the embassy, and this is where an ambassador and his deputy chief of mission, the number two in an embassy, really have to pull that team together and make sure that everybody understands the priorities and make sure that they're knitted up and working in one direction. And honestly, Colombia is a great example of where that works really well, but there are countless examples around the world. And in a place like Bangkok is a great example. Thailand is a country with which we have a very broad, very constructive, there's a lot going on in that relationship. There's economic issues. They are huge partners on international, fighting international crime. And there is a very big law enforcement community in that embassy. And it's all about that embassy leadership and their direction and making sure it's knitted up and working sort of on one cause. And this is where you see the real power of these foreign service officers and the civil servants and the contractors and the people who make up these teams and they're understanding that this is about what's good for our country and therefore the imperative is to work together and get the mission done. I don't care where you go in the world, you see a great American teams inside of these embassies working to do just that. And we talk about the State Department, of course, is totally internationally focused and doesn't necessarily have a constituency in the United States. But on issues like narcotics, where you and your people are really focused on keeping illegal drugs and some very dangerous drugs out of the U.S., there really is a domestic interest in that function working really well. So there's a way to explain State Department activity to the average American, like this really impacts your life. If there's a heroin problem or a fentanyl problem in your community, State Department is one of the key parts of the U.S. government that's addressing that issue. So do you feel a little more pressure sitting where you are just kind of knowing that the work you do in a real material way impacts, you know, potentially millions of Americans. I do. We feel the importance of the mission that we have in front of us. I think nowhere more so than when you're dealing with synthetic opioids, which primarily come from overseas. There's an issue where, where my team, when I first sat down in the chair, we thought, you know, we really have to figure out how we get, look at this issue and get out in front of it and understand what's coming at us around the corner and see what we can do to help the international community get ahead of it. Uh, and for us, 
you know, we work at a lot of different levels. We're in the international organizations creating the framework for all of these issues. So the international agreements that underpin cooperation on drugs or cybercrime or wildlife trafficking, those kinds of issues are things that we're engaged on in the State Department because we want a framework that holds everybody accountable. And then we want a framework where we can help countries get to a point where they can actually meet their obligations. Then we're out building capacity and will, right? We go country by country, seeing who we can gather to good purpose and to work with us to take on things like synthetic opioids or methamphetamine or wildlife trapping, whatever piece of this puzzle we're working on. And we have to understand what's coming at us. So as a bureau, we are also focused on the question of what's around the next corner. So international criminal activity is riding the same backbone that international commerce is, right? Information is moving at, at incredible velocity and goods move at incredible velocity and money moves with incredible velocity and it's you know anonymizing things like cryptocurrencies and other things. So we and INL are trying to understand how those realities are reflected in criminal activity and get ahead of it. So we feel the pressure and our goal is always to add value, right? If we can help keep any amount of illicit narcotics that are killing Americans off of our streets, then good. <laughs> and that's what we're after. Um, and from my perspective, this is where foreign assistance and diplomacy and law enforcement knit up. Opioids are a great example because what we've done is law enforcement is hard at it. Our diplomacy has been really strong. And INL's foreign assistance has enabled a lot of the conversations and cooperation and tools that facilitate working with other countries on this. So we feel the pressure, but I hope we're responding in a way that's appropriate. Uh, that's that's fascinating stuff. And I sensed in your answer there that the war on drugs has really evolved from where it was back in the 80s or the 90s, where we were really focused on cocaine coming from South America, Colombia, Peru in particular, maybe opium poppy coming out of Afghanistan. It's really much more sophisticated, much more diverse threat. There's digital issues, currency issues, all kinds of new things. Can you talk a little bit more about how you have to be cutting edge as a bureau and as a department? to really be effective in this battle? So challenge one is that all of those things that you just talked about, the old days of cocaine and other things, they're not gone. So still they're going on. They're still going on. And we have more capable partners than we once had in a lot of places, which is great. But what we're talking about with the sort of dynamic leading edge of international illicit narcotics trafficking is the synthetics. It's not just methamphetamine, but it's fentanyls and analogs to fentanyls and people sitting in labs reinventing and recreating things every day. I think the other thing is it's a very diffuse market and it is direct to consumer. So what we've seen in synthetic opioids, uh, which is also now being done with other drugs, is that the majority of this stuff is being sold on the dark net, paid for with anonymizing, you know, sort of financial instruments being dropped in the mail. So, you know, with something like fentanyl, which is so potent, you can put a lot of fentanyl and cause a lot of damage with one envelope if you can just get it sort of into the mail and across the line. And that's kind of new. Uh, we're seeing it in other areas of crime, but that made it a very dynamic and challenging uh, threat. Uh, and what it really means is we have to get countries to be able to work with us across international borders, right? If you want to take it down a dark net market, you're talking multiple countries, you're probably talking Europol, Interpol, which are international law enforcement organizations, to really get at these things. Uh, if you want to get at the money flows, you know, China has emerged as a sort of 
poor zone for money laundering. If you want to get at the money flows, you have to be able to work across international borders. So the pressure is very high for us to be as dynamic in our thinking as the criminals are in theirs. But this has been a really uh, unusually dynamic time in the international drug market. And it requires us to have partners and to be very focused. Uh, on the domestic side, we're doing more than we've ever done on prevention and treatment. Our law enforcement and agencies are doing amazing work, but there's an international piece because that's where most of this stuff comes from. Let's talk about China a little bit more, which you just mentioned. How much of your work as it relates to China is working with Chinese officials in a collaborative way? And how much of it is, you know, worrying about Chinese officials and what they're doing or allowing to happen? There seems to be some real tension there for your work. How do you handle that. So if you were to look at the national security strategy of this administration, it was promulgated, I think, in 2017, you would see the statements about working with China where we can and where our interests meet, at the same time that you would see language acknowledging that there is competition. And I think INL's work kind of sits astride that, uh, as, you, as, you, as you've said. The reality is that China has been the, the source. It was the early source of, of the synthetic opioids that were coming from abroad a very profound source of them, and it remains a significant source of the precursor chemicals that can be used to produce them that are being shipped to Mexico. But China did something actually very important for the United States early in the process on opioids. President Trump went to President Xi and made a direct ask repeatedly, and he held his feet to the fire on it and said, we need your help to stem the tide of fentanyl, the synthetic opioids coming out of China and coming to the United States. We need you to schedule them as a class. And what that means is it means you control something as a class. It's like what we do here. We have a control mechanism for highly potent substances that are used in medicine. And the president went to, went to his counterpart and pressed them. And the Chinese in 2019 took regulatory action and they scheduled all fentanyl-related substances as a class. Combined with what we did here with some regulatory and enforcement changes in the U.S., it really began to drop the amount of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs coming out of China and into the United States. It had an impact. Uh, and, and, and we are grateful for the action that they've taken, but we're conscious that a lot more needs to be done. This sort of flow of chemicals in, out of China into Mexico and into places like Burma, which is now this sort of methamphetamine production house uh, extraordinaire um, in a very bad way, uh, there's more work to be done. China remains the primary destination point for traffic wildlife and other things. So there's a lot of work left to be done, but this practical work that was done on scheduling fentanyl as a class, um, and INL worked with DEA and others to do a lot of the scientific exchanges and other things that enabled that, was an absolutely critical step. So there's a place where our interests converged and we found a way to work with them. Uh, we continue to try and work with them. We see this vector of chemicals going into Mexico as a really critical, frankly, threat to our interests and our citizens. So there's a place where we have more work to do, and we're going to keep at it and hope that we can make the same kind of progress we made on the first issue of fentanyl scheduling as a class. It's a big deal that they did it. Are you seeing a similar cooperation from China on money laundering issues, or is, is that a different story? Well, 
I think there's more work to be done on money laundering. And again, this is all part of the evolution, I think, of criminal organizations. It's almost like they've become, certain criminal organizations become specialized in certain activities. And there is this emergence of a money laundering capability that ties back to China that really needs to be understood. Uh, and it connects into Mexico. And it's a reminder that these global organizations are very capable and they have some very specialized supply chain logistics and backroom infrastructure to run their businesses. And there's definitely a connection into China. And I think there's an area where, where more work is needed. What kind of interest are you seeing from Capitol Hill in the work that you do on the war on drugs and the corruption issues? Have you engaged with specific members and committees? Are they as focused on these issues as they should be? Oh, I think the Hill is very engaged on our issues. You'll remember from your time there, I mean, this bureau gets a lot of support on, on the Hill. There's a lot of interest in what we do. Um, some of it is very focused. There's a there's a constituency of members who, who are very focused on wildlife trafficking. There are other members who are very focused on anti-corruption efforts. I think everybody is focused on synthetic opioids and other drugs that come to the United States because they see the impact in their communities. They see it when they go home to their districts. So I think we're very engaged on the Hill. It won't surprise you less since you and I both came from the Hill that we do spend a lot of time talking to them about what we're doing. And we are in the process of trying to you know, sort of evolve some of our programs and harvest some of the things that we've accomplished and build that next generation of capabilities. Uh, and that is a conversation we have to have with our funders and our oversight committees on the Hill. But I welcome that because I think we're all in this together and these are issues that matter to Americans, right? If drugs are coming here, if people are being trafficked, if wildlife is being trafficked, if you name it, that matters to Americans. Or if there's, if there's corruption and other things undermining the ability of our businesses to invest, or undermining the stability in countries that could eventually impact on us. That's all stuff Americans care about. So the, there's no surprise that the Hill's engaged and we welcome it. Do you have any thoughts from, from where you sit now and the work that you've done about how much the issues you work on are really part of the core of issues facing developing countries? And as they kind of make progress or don't, you know, a lot of them aren't making progress, but a lot of them are, you know, that one of the things they really need to do well is handle criminal justice matters and law enforcement. Have you, have you seen that where you are now? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is such an important part of the work we do. I know more people are familiar with what we've done in places like Colombia than are familiar with some of the work that we've done in places in Africa or Southeast Asia. The reality is that governments are very challenged to address these issues. There's a capacity question. Sometimes there's a will question, but very often it's a capacity question. Or, you're, or it's a place where there was a fundamental breakdown in the entire sort of institutional structure and they're starting with the idea that people in that country need to begin to trust those who govern, right? And the institutions of governance, of which one piece is the police, uh, but it's also the courts and other things. So I think these are hugely challenging issues, but sometimes I think they feel overwhelming. But you can see in places like you know, Tunisia and other places where we've worked at a very institutional sort of level after a very disrupted period, where you can begin to make progress, but it's not fast. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have in INL, which is people want you to, they want a revolution, 
and you can't do the kind of institutional change and building that you're talking about in a day or in two years. We have to be present, we have to bring solutions, and we have to stick with it for a while. And I think where we do and where we have will on our with our counterparts, you can see progress being made. But it's very hard. I think one of the big issues justice systems have is they can get people sort of in, but they can't get them through. By which I mean a lot of places have these huge prison populations, people who are sitting in pre-trial detention, and the system can't actually weed them out. It can't keep them out of the prisons, but it also can't put them through the prisons, right? Or get them through the justice process to determine whether or not they belong in prison. And these things are huge challenges for countries, and they take time to fix, but that's exactly what we're working on. If we can find countries that want to work on these issues, are prepared to invest a little bit themselves, we can begin to make progress. Corruption is also one of those issues, right? It's the same kind of thing where you got to build the institutions, you got to help them build resilience and will. You need that civil society constituency that's an advocate and continues to demand that. It's hard work. It doesn't happen quickly. Uh, and I think if there's any one thing that's hard for us in INL is we would love to, to just add water and have it magically be kind of whatever it is that we want it to be. But it, it's time consuming and it takes a lot of work from us and from the countries we're trying to help. So you have the most eclectic musical taste of anyone I know. Uh, so, you know, answer as you wish. How has punk rock affected your ability to be such an important diplomat for your country? I suppose I think that my eclectic musical tastes have brought me to places where I never thought I would be and are just a reminder for people to be bold and to be creative. And at its heart of hearts, punk was about people talking about what was wrong with systems and about what needed to happen. And if you looked at punk rock in Washington, D.C., there was actually a big part of that community who didn't believe in using drugs. They were pretty clean cut for a bunch of punk rockers. And so the reality is that punk rock came out of a belief in change, right? That's ultimately what it came out of. And I suppose if I didn't get up every day thinking that revolution and evolution was possible in these kinds of institutions and in the fight against crime and corruption and all these things that steal, ultimately steal from the good guys. They steal from people's opportunity to live in a democratic and stable place. They steal from people's economic opportunities. And I suppose if I didn't get up every day thinking it was possible to work on that, uh, then I would be, I don't know, not a very happy person and I wouldn't be very successful, but that's what it is. That's the mindset you need if you're going to take on these kind of challenges. And so there's a big lesson from Punk. Madam Assistant Secretary, that was terrific. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, great interview, terrific issues, great perspective. Really appreciate your doing this. Thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it. Have a great day, Les. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu or on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at msi at gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and our producer and director, Grant Haver, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.